There was once a strong man in a circus sideshow who demonstrated his power before large audiences every night. Toward the end of one performance, he squeezed the juice from a lemon between his hands. He said to the onlookers, I will offer $200 to anyone who can squeeze one more drop from this lemon. Eighty-five-year-old, thin and hobbling woman made her way upstage. She picked up the lemon, clapped it between her two frail bony hands and squeezed, and out came a teaspoon of lemon juice. The strong man was amazed and immediately paid the woman $200, but privately asked her, what is the secret of your strength? And she said, practice. I've been the treasurer of my church for 42 years. (laughs) This morning we're talking about giving to the church. And I think it's become fairly obvious that I've been excited about this message. uh, I feel like this message is about 25, 26 years in the making. And last week in preparation for this message, as well as just for the sheer fun of being honest, um, I explained the process of proof texting and how we have a tendency to pull a handful of random verses from all over the scripture and, and use them to basically reinforce what we already wanted to say. If you want the theological term, uh, Bill reminded me of it. It's eisegetics, if you just want to sound like a nerd sometime. Exegetics is when you take what the text says and you pull it out for your own life. Eisegetics is when you take your own life and you infuse it into the text. And, and so we, we come up with something we want to say, and then we find a few random verses that kind of reinforce that. And just to show how ridiculous it can get, I did an exercise last week of, of, of pulling some random verses, and we came up with some just ridiculous conclusions. But, but a lot of times we do that, and I, I explain that process basically to say I'm going to spend the month doing that. <laughs> when you deal with some subjects like money, there is no single passage you can go to and just get everything the Bible has to say about it from a single passage. So we have to hop around a bit. We have to bounce around Scripture just a little bit, but I also want to let everybody know, you know, kind of just what preachers have to deal with and, and, uh, and what we're trying to do a little bit differently here at Open Table and why I tend to teach the way I do. And I set that up basically to be open and honest about the fact that um, that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. I have to bounce around um, a bit. So I'm, uh, I'm going to sort of... Uh, make today uh, a little bit fun. It might be a little bit different than what we normally do because I'm going to kind of build a thought progressively and, uh, and kind of build one point on top of another. But I hope that it's uh, surprising to you uh, and obviously encouraging and challenging. So here's what we're going to do for this series. Last week, um, we established that when the Bible talks about our money, it's not talking about your checking account. It's talking about your everything. The same Bible has been effective and powerful in cultures that aren't even currency-based, that don't have what we would consider money. And it still means the same thing. When the Bible talks about us uh, giving of our money or giving of our resources, stewarding, it's talking about our everything. Jesus made this tie between our treasure and our hearts that, that is always together. Where your heart is, there your treasure is, and they're connected. And so when the Bible talks about our stuff and when the Bible talks about how we steward the things God's given us, it's talking about our hearts. It's talking about just the way we run our entire lives. And so we kind of did that last week. This week we're going to talk about what the Bible says about giving, um, especially giving to the church. And then next week um, we're going to talk about some of the stuff the Bible says about your heart outside the church, you know, how you manage things outside the church and 
and what your heart should look like when it comes to money, um, especially your time, talents, motivation, your everything. So the launching point um, from last week is that we're talking about everything you are and everything you have. And then the final week, we're going to talk about money here at Open Table. It's going to be kind of a, a talk where we kind of focus on us, and it'll be a little more personal. Last year at this time, um, we were taking an offering for this remodel um, to create this space. And, and so we studied some times when something similar happened in the Bible. There's several times when the Bible tells us about some building projects when the people raised money to, to create a building for God, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in, uh, in Jerusalem, and then what the early Christians did. And, and so we talked about that a year ago. And in the process, while we were studying the building of the tabernacle, we, we kind of stumbled upon this idea that while they're taking an offering for God's house to advance his kingdom, it was a time period in, the, in Israel's life when God was literally having to provide for them daily, providing manna in the wilderness. So this isn't a time when everybody's, you know, got extra, when, when there's, you know, the harvests are good and there's plenty to draw from. This is a time when God is having to literally sustain them daily. And while he's sustaining them daily, they're advancing his kingdom by building this uh, space for him. And so we kind of drew out this reciprocal relationship with God where, whereby he provides for us daily even while we give back um, to advance his kingdom. And so we kind of looked at the manna and that the Israelites had this like physical thing, this manna that God provided every single day. And so we kind of, kind of as a faith experiment, wrote down some things that we felt like we needed God to do in our lives. A year ago we did this. I've been praying for those once a week since and... On that fourth week of this series, I'm going to give those back to everybody that did them last year. And we're going to do new ones for this next year. I don't know if we'll do this every single year, but we might. But it just feels like a kind of a neat thing as we're talking about the way we give to God to also focus on the way he gives to us and to, to kind of hone in on that. And so at the end of last year's series, I took a, uh, an offering um, to, for this building, for this space, to get started on it. And this year I'm going to take an offering, um, hopefully, of your time and your energy and your talents because we need more people to get involved um, at Open Table. Uh, our money situation's pretty good, um, but we could use some more of your time. So I am going to uh, be highlighting some positions we need filled and some opportunities we have to serve here, and hopefully some people will jump in. All right, so are you ready for this morning's message? Because uh, – I have been building, I know I've been talking about this forever. Who's familiar with the word tithe? Anybody heard the word tithe? Okay, pretty much everybody. The word tithe literally means tenth, and it is traditionally taught to be that part of your income that you give to God via the church, right? Everybody pretty much on board with that? The Bible often calls it his tithe, or God refers to it as my tithe. And this is the part of your income that goes straight to God. No questions asked. You just give that to the church. Then you might give a free will offering or a love offering or pledge to give something for a building fund or whatever. But this tithe part is the part that the church should be able to count on to set their budget. Does everybody agree this is kind of the typical teaching on tithe? Everybody, we're still pretty much on board. So what I'm going to do this morning is kind of a deconstruct, reconstruct thing. I'm going to uh, deconstruct what we think we know about the tithe. And once we get it all taken apart, we're basically going to reconstruct what the Bible says, a New Testament non-Jewish believer, how they should approach giving. 
Does that sound fun to anybody else? Are you ready for me to really mess with your heads? Oh, because I'm looking forward to it. One caveat, and I, did, I promised you I would be honest in this series, that I would drop, you know, open the curtain, let everybody see behind at the way we do things. I do write all my own sermons. I study each passage from the perspective of what the Scripture says and what our congregation needs. I've never re-preached someone else's materials. But that doesn't mean I don't steal from a thousand sources. I, I, uh, I absolutely plagiarize Always. Every preacher does. There's no way any of us can remember where we got everything. We listen to too much stuff, and we steal all of it. It's just a, every preacher I've ever known, when you bring it up, they're like, oh, yeah, totally, totally plagiarize on a regular basis. But every time I teach a passage, I read theological commentaries. I try to read historians that aren't Christians because I like to know what the people who aren't Christians say about that time period and, and what they pull out of there. If we're doing an Old Testament passage, I always try and read one or two Jewish commentaries, somebody who believes in this passage and that this passage is from God but doesn't necessarily look at it through a New Testament lens. I always try to read some of those. And then I always try to um, understand and, and research the, the literary aspects of the text, what, uh, what, what's in the literature that might change its interpretation. And then I always try to read a couple – you know, fairly contemporary or pseudo-contemporary uh, pastors and, and thinkers to make sure I'm still kind of within the realm of orthodoxy, you know. So whenever I study a passage, I kind of try to set my boundaries that way so that I'm, I'm not wandering off, you know, into the, the deep woods or anything. I have to be honest. In this one, I'm out on my own. Like, I'm out on a limb. I cannot find anybody that agrees with me on this topic. So you have every right to go, Chris, you're crazy. I don't agree with you on this one. No worries. You're with the majority if you do that. So I can't find anybody that, that sees this the way I do. Um, and usually if you're the only one thinking something, you got to assume you're a little off and a little crazy, but I just can't come up with any other way to interpret some of this. And so I'm going to share it with you. And if you think I'm nuts, no worries at all, because I, uh, I'm on my own here. So let's start to deconstruct. Our passage this morning is from Deuteronomy 14. If you don't know how the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, work, Genesis is kind of a backstory. Exodus is kind of a diary account of when Israel left uh, Egypt. Leviticus is kind of where they begin to put together their kind of religious and national code. It's kind of their constitution, you might say. It's what kind of defines them as a people. Numbers is a giant census, and then Deuteronomy is a recap. And so if you're reading straight through the Bible, Deuteronomy always feels redundant because you just read all this stuff, and then Deuteronomy goes and gives it back to you kind of in a more concise thing. So we're going to read from Deuteronomy about what Deuteronomy says about the tithe because this would be tithing in a nutshell. This would be the, the kind of concise nutshell version of, of everything the Pentateuch says about the tithe. So let's start here. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth, of all your crops each year. So far, so good. Bring the tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. Everybody's still on board. Nothing new, right? And eat it there in his presence. The supplies of the tithe of your grains, new wine, oils, firstborn males, first flocks, herds. Doing this will teach you to always fear the Lord your God. Who's heard this verse before? Anybody, has anybody ever heard a preacher tell you you're supposed to eat your own tithes? Anyone? Seriously, I've been asking around, has anybody ever heard a preacher pull this out? That you eat your own tithe? 
Well, in case you think I'm just reading one of those weird newfangled uh, translations, I gave you a couple. Here's what the New King James says. You shall surely tithe all your increase of your grain that you produce year by year, and you shall eat it or eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses his name to abide. NIV, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he chooses as a dwelling for his name. Now, before you completely freak out, the tithe you're used to, the one where you give it to the church, the one where you just put it in the box in the back or go online and, you know, I'm sure Moses explained how to go online and tithe. The tithe you're used to does actually exist. It goes like this. This is the same passage, a few verses later. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your town, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. Have you ever heard a teacher, preacher tell you that one-third of your tithe comes to the church? Anyone? No one? Good. I'm so glad to hear that. Every preacher on this planet says this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm... I'm just reading the Bible here. I'm not adding any commentary. I'm not even, I've done nothing, no interpretation yet. All I've done is read you the scripture. And would you agree it's different than we're used to? Yeah. And then look, if you have a Bible with you, please look it up. Make sure I'm not messing with you. This is what the Bible says about the tithe. Just to give some background, the Jewish harvest festival called Sukkot or the, the Feast of Tabernacles um, is one of the three pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish calendar, which means you have to travel to the place where God's name is to be honored. It eventually becomes Jerusalem. So no matter where you live in Israel, if you move beyond Israel, three times a year you're supposed to travel back to Jerusalem and celebrate. The Feast of Tabernacles is an eight-day festival in Jerusalem. In some parts of the world it's only seven days, but that gets weird when we get into that. But it's an eight-day festival in Jerusalem. So basically... What's being described here is you, you gather your harvest, you see how much you made, you set aside a tenth of that, you take it to Jerusalem, and it, it provides for this eight-day festival to eat, basically, in the presence of God and celebrate for eight days on this kind of camping trip where everybody lives in tents and celebrates in Jerusalem. First, this is fun. This is, I'm really going to blow some of your brains up right now. Oh, this is so much fun. The Bible's fun. It just is. I know I'm a nerd, but it's fun. Sometimes if you have a lot of tithe, that's a lot of stuff to haul all the way back to Jerusalem. So the Bible does give this caveat whereby if you can't drag everything back, you can sell it and take the money to Jerusalem and buy the stuff you're going to need for this big festival. And here's what it says about that. Now, when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored might be too far for you to bring the tithes. If so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds, um, but put the money in a pouch and go to the place your God has chosen. You guys ready to have a heart attack? When you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, and other alcoholic drinks. Is it me or did the Bible just say I can use my tithe for beer money? Is that (laughs) what that says? (laughs) But the passage isn't done yet, and this is actually very important. 
Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. This word household is very important because it doesn't say family. It says household. Your household would include all of your servants, your field hands, your employees. It would include your entire household, which is why this is a percentage type giving in in an agricultural style society in order to have a huge harvest and thereby get a huge tithe, you would have to have a huge staff. You'd have to have a lot of employees. And so this is saying you take that 10%, which should be enough kind of proportional to feed your entire, you know, company, your entire staff, your employees, your servants, your family, your everybody. And so if you're a smaller outfit, you've got a smaller piece of land, you bring in a smaller tithe, you're, you're probably feeding fewer people. And so this, this 10% is basically an eight-day party for or celebration in the presence of God for your entire, you know, uh, household, everybody that works for you and lives with you and, and so forth. So if you want to bring your own tithe, bring it. If you want to sell your tithe, bring the money and purchase in Jerusalem, you can do that. Incidentally, this kind of turns into one of those sneak your own candy into the theater rather than buying the hugely overpriced stuff uh, once you get there because this is the concept that leads to Jesus turning over the money tables. People got used to bringing their money, buying their offering at the temple. It was outlined that way, but of course when you do that, there's that middleman that wants his cut and wants to basically be opportunistic about selling offerings and selling things to people who brought their pouch of money instead of their own tithes. And that was the part. It wasn't the fact that there was something being sold in the temple. That's actually allowed in Scripture. It was that they were um, using it to, to make a profit on people's worship. That was the part that was, that was bothering. The, the, the actual outline of selling things in the temple was, was supposed to happen for people who lived too far away to drag their offerings all the way there. Um, but they were making a profit on it, and that's what upset God or uh, upset Jesus so badly. Anyway, is this the tithe you're used to, everything we've said here today? I really haven't offered much commentary. I've mostly just dealt with the Scripture. And I can honestly spend all day going through the Jewish um, offering system and because it would kind of serve as their taxes and their religious offerings, and, and it, uh, it's kind of, you know, we could try to bring that forward and look at every place that it relates to us, but if I'm honest, very little of what's written in the Levitical Code do we put much stock in for, for being non-Jewish uh, Gentile Christians. Most of us don't have tassels on our jackets. Most of us don't have a problem with a pulled pork sandwich, shrimp and lobster, or cheeseburgers. Like, we're okay with that. We don't mind um, wearing a shirt that's a nice cotton nylon blend. Couldn't do that in the Levitical Code. We work past sundown some Friday nights. And hopefully we all eat bacon. <laughs> if we're honest, we don't, we don't apply much of these passages, many of these passages to our own lives today. So what's the big deal about tithing? If we don't bring forth the fact that you can't wear mixed fabrics, why do we bring forth tithing, what the Old Testament says about tithing? Well, that's a good point. I'm glad you asked. Most people, when you ask them that, will take you to Abraham. That's where they'll go next because Abraham existed before Moses and there's this passage where Abraham had just won a war and uh, some of his family was taken captive by by some people and so he gathered some help and went and attacked and it was this kind of big war Uh, it's in the book of Genesis there's a lot of political backstory that isn't worth going into but after that war Abraham won this is what the scene says after Abraham returned from his victory over uh, Keter Lamah 
And all the, you know, when you're reading the big Bible words, if you just sound confident, everybody assumes you know what you're talking about. So, um, and all their allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God most high, brought Abraham some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. So we have this kind of instance in the Old Testament where Abraham gives a tenth of his war spoils to, to this high priest. It doesn't tell us if this is a regular habit of Abraham's or a one-time act. It doesn't tell us if this is something he does just with war spoils or if he tithed of his you know, regular monthly increase in his flock since he was a shepherd. But it does show this pattern that maybe giving 10% of your earnings to some religious figure uh, existed before Moses, that, that this was a concept that, that somehow existed. We don't really see it much in history. We don't know where Abraham got this number, uh, and we don't know if Moses' choice of that number had anything to do with it, but we do know it happened before Moses. And so uh, people assume that that means this is, this is a, a, a religious activity that transcends the Jewish law. It existed before, so naturally it would carry through after, except um, the same Abraham also you know, tied his son to a bundle of sticks to offer him up as a sacrifice. The same Abraham uh, impregnated his wife's servant. The same Abraham lied to the government about his marital status to stay out of trouble. So there's a lot of things we don't use Abraham as an example for that doesn't carry through, thank God. Um, but for some reason, that's our, about our greatest example of why the tithe isn't thrown out with kind of for Gentiles with, with some of the other Levitical practices um, is because it existed before the Levitical practices. And so we would assume that if that's the case, right, if, if this is this kind of uh, living ritual, this living activity, biblical discipline, obviously the New Testament writers would pick it up, right? They would, they would continue it and pass it on. Well, not exactly. I'm not going to read these two passages just for the sake of time, but uh, the, the, the tithe only shows up in the New Testament twice, period. You never see the word anywhere else. Go look me up, check me. Tithe shows up in two passages. One is when the, the Pharisees were kind of overstressing the tithe and uh, understressing some of the more important aspects of Torah. And Jesus, you know, told them that, yeah, they should have tithed, um, but they should have stressed these other things more. But you have to remember, these are the guys that do have the tassels on their jackets. These are the guys that don't eat shrimp and lobster and cheeseburgers and pulled pork and bacon. These are the guys that only wear one kind of fabric at a time. So, of course, they were supposed to tithe. They're living under the entire Levitical system. That's one use of the word tithe in the New Testament. The second is in Hebrews, and it's actually retelling this story of Abraham and Melchizedek. It's, it's actually a debate that's going on about the nature of Jesus and whether or not he could be considered a high priest because the high priest and the, and the, and the royal uh, position were lineage positions, and Jesus was from the royal position of David, not from Levi. David was from Judah, and, and Levi was where the priests came from. And so there's this argument as to whether Jesus could actually be a high priest, and, and the argument the, the writer of Hebrews uses is he would be from the line of Melchizedek, this, this high priest in the Old Testament that 
Um, and he used it to show that the, the greater would receive a tithe from the lesser. And since Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham, in essence, whoever this Melchizedek guy is, is above the kind of Jewish line altogether. And so he kind of makes this argument that, that Jesus is a high priest, but not from the, from the Levitical system, from this Melchizedekian system. And so it really has nothing to do with the tithe itself. It's just talking, using the tithe as an example. Well, those are the two times tithe is even mentioned in the New Testament. This, this, this thing that's kind of become the core of our understanding of, given, of giving, not only do we do it wrong, not only is it from a system that we've mostly, um, thanks to Acts 15, don't have to follow as Gentile believers, but, um, but there's no evidence that it continued. Paul wrote to Gentile Christians in most of his letters, people who would have had no history of Moses, no history of tithing. It wouldn't have been just automatically part of their system. You'd think if there's anybody that Paul was going to have to teach the concept of tithing to, it would have been to the churches that he birthed you know, in these Gentile lands. Paul doesn't mention it to anybody. doesn't say anything about it. That's it. Those are the only two mentions of tithing in the entire New Testament. All these brand new Christians, and no one tells them about tithing. So, that's the deconstruction. Everybody cool with that? We've taken that apart fairly thoroughly, then let's reconstruct. We're not going to follow the Mosaic Law for matters like sacrifice and offerings and, and diet and dress. Um, let's assume we're not supposed to follow it in matters of tithing either. Okay? And if we don't generally use Abraham for a good example of how to have marital bliss or healthy parenting... Let's not use him as an example for how we should give either, unless we want to divide some more plunder. So where would we go for our example on giving, on how to manage our finances? If we're, if we're New Testament Gentile Christians and we need to go to the scripture to ask, how do I give? Where do we go? And I believe we should go to the book of Acts. This is the very first group of people who are like us, the very first group of people who are trying to figure out how to advance God's kingdom while loving Jesus, these people who, who had been so overwhelmed by the, the love of God revealed on the cross and the power of God revealed in the, in the resurrection that they had they gathered together like we are and said, how do we do this? How do we do life? I think that's the group we go to. So let's, let's look at what they do. This is in Acts chapter 4. And all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned their land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. And suddenly no one is having as much fun as they were a minute ago. This is what the very first Christians did in response to this great love they had found. They looked at this love of God and the power of God, and they said, this is worth everything. This is worth everything. Nothing matters after this. I will give everything. Their example is simple. How much does God get? He gets everything, all of it. So if you get out your checkbooks and credit cards, we're going to pass a plate around. Now, I'm not saying that communalism is the way Christians are supposed to live today, but I do want to establish one thing. If we're going anywhere in the Bible for an example of how 
we should give to God. The roots of the Christian church in the book of Acts feels like the natural place for me. feels like way more natural than the Jewish law that we, for the most part, don't follow in any other ways or following the financial management of a 4,000-year-old nomad named Abraham. So here's what's on the table. Not only is the tithe not what we thought it was, but it's not taught in the New Testament. But in contrast, the earliest example of people in our church is pretty extreme. And luckily, Paul did write one passage about money that's fairly commonly talked about, but usually in the context of attitude rather than process. And I'm going to submit this morning that those two are the same. This comes from 2 Corinthians. Paul is preparing to take an offering. So in all transparency, this, this passage isn't necessarily talking about regular weekly giving, but it's, it's, the, it's the clearest text on giving in the New Testament context that we have. So let's look at it. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your hearts how much you will give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves a giver who gives cheerfully. And then he says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. You must decide in your own heart how much you should give, for God loves a cheerful giver. Incidentally, this is one of the key verses on giving here at Open Table. This is kind of where we formed our, our understanding of giving. If you're reluctant, it says, and actually I like the New King James Version. That's the one I learned on. Don't give grudgingly. It uses the word grudgingly. If you're giving grudgingly, if you ever feel like I'm pressuring you to give, don't give. You would be disobeying the Scripture if you gave in that context. You have a verse to back you up. If I ever pressure you to give, you can go, ah, now I can't. Second Corinthians 9. If you're ever angry or frustrated about giving, then don't. The one New Testament verse we have on giving tells you not to. It also does a pretty plain language that you can't reap a harvest if you don't sow seed. I'm not going to lean in on that lest you feel pressured and then the whole thing blows up. But I'd be remiss not to point it out. What Paul does here is something I love. Months and months ago, when we were talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the icebergs. Anybody remember the iceberg? That we have a tendency, you know, have you ever seen those pictures of the iceberg that has like this much of it above the water and then there's this huge thing below the water? And, and uh, we have this tendency to pick on the stuff we can see, the stuff above the water. Like that's what the Sermon on the Mount was kind of getting at is, is like you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, like that thing anybody can see and you can pick on. I, I'm looking at the stuff under the water that nobody can see, like lust. You've heard it said, don't, don't murder, that thing that, you know, everybody can pick on and know if you did it or not. And because and, uh, I've watched CSI, they always catch you. But I'm talking about anger. I'm talking about that stuff under the water that nobody can see. Paul kind of does that here. Jesus goes under the water. Paul does it beautifully. He, he kind of says the, the, the tithe, you know, anything you do with a calculator, that's in the top 10% where an auditor could come through and check and see if you did what you were supposed to do financially. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about that thing nobody can see. 
I'm talking about that area that's between you and God. Like that part is what Paul goes at. What happens when the amount you're supposed to give is 100%? Drop to what can you give cheerfully? Only God knows that number. If it's 10%, only God knows that number that you can give cheerfully. What happens if you haven't given in forever and, and God says, give a dollar? Can you give a dollar cheerfully? Be excited about dropping it? And then he stretches you. Try $10. Can you give that cheerfully? What, where's the point? You can't do that on a calculator. You can't figure out what your giving is supposed to look like on a calculator. Because it's, it's, a, it's a heart thing. God wants at your heart. He doesn't care about your checkbook. He wants at your heart. And he knows he has to deal with your money because that's where your heart connects. But, but how much relationship can happen by taking your bottom line, multiplying it by 0.1? Like how relational is that? Only God knows if, if you're being stretched and pulled and, and, and if you're cheerful, if you're grudging, if you're submitting to pressure or... Only God knows that. So it's between you and God, which is why I think Paul said you must each decide in your heart how much to give. Not just because that's well, up to you. Whatever you want to give, give. No, but rather because it's relationship, real relationship, which you can't do on a calculator. It takes communication and, and time with God, and that's, that's where our giving happens. So let's bring this in for a landing. The New Testament basically lays out two principles for giving. This topic, this money topic that's become so big in the church, the New Testament really only gives us two basic principles. One, give 100% to God. This is what the early church did, frankly. And, you know, we have a tendency to lament the loss of the power and uh, just the the impact this tiny group of people had in the early church, the fact that they would go around doing these amazing things, but we always tend to forget they also gave everything, everything. They gave God everything, and then not only did they give him everything, most of them died for him. They did not live happy, joyful, peaceful lives. And, and so we kind of tend to want the power of the early church, but we certainly don't want to give everything, and man, don't let me be beaten for it. Like, it's something to think about. And I don't feel that communing is practical today, communing is practical today. I do believe that the spirit of this decision is appropriate. 100% of your finances, your possessions, your time, your talent, that's God's. And you can offer that up. It means that you don't give 100% to the church, but it means that the decision of what car I buy is just as spiritual as how much I tithe. The decision of what shirt I should wear becomes just as spiritual as how much I give to the church because 100% of it is God's. We ask him the question, God, how can my house be used to advance your kingdom? How can I drive a car that can be used to help, you know, to tell people about Jesus? Everything I do becomes about how, how God, do I use this for your glory? Everything. Then suddenly everything we do is just as spiritual and just as powerful as how much do I give to the church? Because we give 100% of everything. It's what the early church did. It's our earliest example of how to manage our stuff is we go, God, it's all yours, all of it. Every decision becomes about God. The New Testament starts here. The second principle the New Testament teaches about money is this. You give 100% of what you can give cheerfully to the church. 
100% is God's, and whatever you can give cheerfully to the church goes to the church. God is far more concerned about what's on your heart than about your money. I honestly believe he would rather have $1 cheerfully than $1,000 grudgingly. I honestly believe that. And that's it. For a New Testament non-Jewish Christian, that's what the Bible says about giving your money. And believe me, tithing is easier. It's a lot easier to, to, to sit down with your paycheck, do some fourth grade math, write a check and send it in. What the New Testament explains is relationship. What the New Testament explains is, is God, here's my everything. And now I have to, to examine my own heart and my relationship with you and say, how much can I give cheerfully? I'm not saying that a 10% offering is wrong. I think it's a good number, good as any. But if you ever give that reluctantly or, or because you feel pressured, then you're doing it wrong. I think giving is supposed to reflect your relationship with God. So how do we respond to this? If I'm right, and like I say, I'm on my own out here. If I'm right, if the New Testament teaches a less rigid, more relational approach to giving, then what do we do with passages like Deuteronomy? What do we do with the passages about tithing? What do we do with, with that passage? Do we cut those passages out of the Bible, just some scissors since they don't really apply to us? I don't think so because I think there are some things we can, we can draw for that. First, we can extrapolate from Deuteronomy the place where we should give. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. It'd be easy for us to assume that since we eat our own tithe, you know, well, heck, I'm, I'm going to go tithe on the golf course. You know, just, just take my tithe and buy a golf membership. That's not the case. God's very specific that this is not a feast you have in your backyard. You have to go somewhere. You have to go to the designated place of worship. The early church laid everything down at the feet of the apostles. They, they didn't just kind of offer it vaguely up to God. Well, everything's yours, so it doesn't matter where I give it. This passage tells us what to do with our offerings. But there's something more important that happens, and it's that shocking line none of us are used to. Eat it there in his presence. So what could that possibly mean in our cultural context? Are you supposed to bring your tithe here in the form of Casey's Pizza? And, you know, I bought this with my tithe this week. I got some to share, hopefully. Are you supposed to bring your tithes here and eat it yourself? My answer would be yes, absolutely. This is where the heart of this passage really reflects the passage in Acts. When you give to the church, and especially when you give to Open Table Community Church, please don't ever feel like you're giving to charity, like you're giving to a 501c3 or like you're donating money. In fact, I don't even want you to feel like I'm giving this to God. I'm giving this to the church. My prayer is that you would see what you do when you give here as creating your church, that you are helping to provide the place that you need to connect to people. You eat your own tithes. You're making your church is the, is, is the spirit of what's happening here. And this goes for when you serve. This goes for when you pray for the church. This goes for when you give. You're not, it's not something you're giving away. 
is something you're providing for yourself. You're, this is something we all have to join in to make happen. And when, when you give to the church, it's so that you can enjoy the church. It's so that you can have a place to come, so your kids can have a place to come and grow up knowing they're part of the people of God. It's, it's so that you, so you're making the church. You are eating your own tithe. There's a cooperation and a, a teamwork to church. The early church shared everything they had, and no one went without. They, they shared it. It was a cooperative effort. And that's the heart of this Deuteronomy passage. The power of eating your own tithe meant, and this is where it gets challenging, is the real power of that passage is you had to show up. You couldn't write a tithe check and send it with your neighbor, say, hey, take this into Jerusalem for me, I'm busy. The power of eating your own tithe is you have to show up. You have to be there to eat it. You have to be there to, to enjoy the, the environment you're providing, the, the environment you're enjoying. You have to partake of your, in, your own tithe, which means you had to be there. And I'm not saying if you miss church, you shouldn't give online by all means. We make it easy so you can give anywhere. And I'm not going to hammer anyone for having to miss church. I know life's busy right now, but what I'm saying is, don't, don't look at church as something that is provided for you and, and don't look at church as something you donate to or give to. When you're giving, whether it's money or time or prayer, however you help, you're providing church. You're making it happen. You paid for that seat. You're eating your own tithe. So here's how I'd love to respond this morning. Decide in your own heart how much, how you're supposed to help create church, how you're supposed to help make this happen. Ask yourself, as we take communion this morning, wrestle with that question. How much can I give cheerfully? How much time can I give cheerfully before I start to get super grumpy about it? If you're considering volunteering and something in your gut is cringing about it, don't, don't, don't volunteer then. Don't give that way. Don't give grudgingly. If you've never given financially before, ask yourself, how much could I give and be really excited about giving? I've always been told it's supposed to be 10%. Could I feel really good about 2%? Like, could I be excited to write that check? Could I, you know, I can't afford much. There's just no room in the budget. You know, what, what could I give and be really excited about giving? I didn't ask his permission to do this. I, that's my preface to any time I do this. You guys know that. Ugo came up to me last week after last week's message. He's an amazing artist. You should go online and look at his stuff. He was like, I've got some art I would love to share. People want to buy it, they can buy it and give the money to the church, but it's my gift, my talent, and I'd love to share it with the church. Ask yourself, what can I give cheerfully? What can I give and be excited about giving it? What can I give and love doing it? That it doesn't, you know, it's not painful every time I do it. If it's painful, drop it back a little bit. You might get back up to that level, but be excited about providing church. Maybe you've been given 10%. When was the last time you went to God and said, am I, am I giving the right amount? Should I, should I try 11? Should I, should I drop down to 9? Like, when was the last time you, you dug into that? Spend some time looking into your own heart. How much should I give, God? How should I give? 
Should I commit to prayer, God? I, I don't have much time. I don't have much money, but can I wake up 10 minutes earlier and say a prayer for the church? Can I do that and be cheerful about it and be excited and know that I'm doing my part, I'm helping out? If you currently give and serve and pray, ask yourself if you're comfortable. Are you cheerful about it? Are you excited about it? Are you happy to be joining God in his mission? If not, go back and find out what's going on. Spend some time saying, God, why am I not excited about this? What, what am I missing? Should I try something else? Should I, should I dig into another area? Treat your giving, your stewardship, like relationship with God. It's his stuff. Let him manage it. Finally and most importantly, Put way less stress on how much you give here at church and way more stress on how you manage the rest. The example we're left to follow is believers who gave everything to God. I think if our church went home today and and spent some time going, okay, God, everything I have is yours. Like, I'm not going to give it all to the church, but everything I have is yours. How do you want me to manage it? I think if we all did that, I don't think we would have to worry about how much we give at church. I think that would work itself out. I don't think I would have to push on anybody to give ever because if we were giving 100% to God, I think it would be pretty easy to give cheerfully anywhere he tells us to. How can I use every single thing I have, every minute I waste, every talent you've given me to advance your kingdom, to be part of your kingdom? I don't think we'd have to worry about the rest. My high school football coach used to regularly scream at us, all I want is all you got. And he would say, that should encourage you because I'm never going to ask for more than what you got. All I want is all you got. I think God's a lot like my coach. All he wants is all you got. Let's go to the table.